You're listening to Food Psych, a podcast about nutrition, eating disorders, and body image. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in health at every size. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships to food. Hey guys, welcome to episode 70. I am super excited to share this episode with you because not only is it an amazing conversation and it went a lot longer than our usual episodes because it was so much good stuff, but also because I have some really exciting announcements, one in particular that I think you are going to love. Um, so first, I'll tell you about today's episode and what's coming up. I am talking with Megan Bruno, who is a psychotherapist as well as a writer and a recovered person who has recovered from an eating disorder and now works with other people to recover. She also is a fellow podcaster who has a podcast in Forbes called The Failure Factor, where she talks with people about failure and how it has helped them uh, move forward in their lives and build resilience. She's a really interesting person with a lot of great insight, and I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. First, though, the exciting announcement that I think you guys are going to love is that as of this week, Food Psych is now a weekly podcast again. It has been a long time in the coming because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that when I started it in 2013, it was weekly and it, that was the first season. And then in the second season, I just got overwhelmed and overcommitted. And so I kind of faced a crossroads. I was like, either I stop doing the podcast or put it on indefinite hiatus, or I just reduce the frequency and do the best I can and soldier on. And so I chose the latter, and I'm so glad I did because I'm so glad that Food Psych exists and that all of those episodes exist um, and that I was able to keep going because I've heard from so many of you that it really resonates with you and has helped so many people in their recovery. So I'm glad that I made that self-care decision to just like dial it down and do what I could and do it imperfectly, but keep going. And I think that was such a great lesson for me because I did it and it wasn't fun. Like I really had a lot of angst about going less frequently because in season two, I went down to monthly. It was like I was barely doing a podcast. And then season three, I ramped back up to every other week. But I still have just felt this like kind of annoyance about it. Like, oh, I wish I could do more. I wish I could do it more often. All these other people are doing weekly podcasts now. You know, I mean, there was definitely a little of that compare and despair stuff going on that I had to check myself about. And I think that's really why self-care can be so hard sometimes, because it really was a self-care decision to not do it as frequently. And I had to like, you know, fight back these comparing thoughts like other people are doing this and why can't I and just be like, nope, this is my path. I have to do it this way, you know, for my own sanity and balance. And I had to also fight off the internal urges of like, oh, I miss doing my weekly podcast. I miss talking to people more often. I miss the feedback I'm getting from listeners more often, blah, blah, blah. And just be like, again, like what's really going to work for me? What's really right for me? And so, you know, I share that because I think it's a good example of how self-care can be really boring and annoying. And it's not all just beautiful, nourishing, wonderful experiences. A lot of the time, it's just super mundane and it kind of sucks. And it's stuff that you don't want to do. 
But the good news is that, you know, some self-care practices that are annoying and mundane and boring don't have to last forever or don't have to be that way forever. Um, And in this case, it's not going to last forever because now I have the time to be able to do a weekly podcast again because I just was able to like have some boundaries with other work stuff in my life and create a nice balance. And I think one important aspect of creating that and something that I have to thank you guys so much for is that I've been able to um, really ramp up my online course and have a lot of students enrolling in that and that's been going so well and I'm really excited to announce the next phase of that which is that I'm going to be adding a private Facebook group to the course. Um, So I guess I just transitioned seamlessly here into my second big announcement which is that I'm going to be adding this Facebook group and I'm going to be adding some more great content to my intuitive eating online course and the price is going to go up a bit accordingly but for my folks who are already enrolled, they'll get all these changes for free. It'll just be automatically upgraded and you'll already have access to it. So it pays, obviously, to get in on the ground floor and get in on the course before I make all these cool additions. Check out the course page for the latest information. You can do that at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and reviews, sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. Okay, that is it for the announcements today. And without any further ado, I want to bring you my conversation with Megan Bruneau. I spoke with her via Skype. Even though we both live in New York City, we spoke via Skype because that's how life is. Um, So I spoke with her via Skype from her home in New York City. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Well, I mean... I, I honestly can't remember ever having a healthy relationship with food. And, you know, I mean, maybe when we have a healthy relationship with food, we're not aware that it's healthy until it's unhealthy. <laughs> so that might be part of it. But, I mean, I can remember as young as I must have been, like, five or six, um, becoming aware that I was, like, not thin. So, um, like, a couple experiences that I remember really, really clearly. Um, I remember my, my brother was, like, so my brother was, he was two years older than me. And he was like, kind of like one of those like roly poly, chubby, like adorable babies. And I was a baby who like had more trouble keeping weight on. I was very different. And as we got older, he really thinned out and like I then took on some weight. And I remember vividly, I think I was about six and I remember like us being at our cabin and I was in a bathing suit and he was like, I used to be a a fat baby and now I'm skinny and you used to be a skinny baby and now you're fat. And yeah, so I remember that being like my first, and you know what, I remember that being one of my first experiences of shame, like just sort of all of a sudden feeling like I'm not good enough and there's something wrong with me and becoming very aware that like that was a bad thing. Like I was now fat. And I also remember um, we used to go back to um, my dad's parents' cabin back east every second summer and they would always 
tease me relentlessly about having a sweet tooth. So we would always have dessert and then it was always like, oh, Megan has a sweet tooth. So I also felt shame around that. And they would always say like, oh no, you know, it's, uh, it's, we're just, we're, we're laughing with you, right? We're not laughing at you. But, you know, those were some really early formative moments. And, um, you know, my mom, uh, my mom has struggled with her, her own eating issues her whole life. And she's been really good about not explicitly putting them onto me and always telling me that like, you know, it doesn't matter what size I am. And, um, you know, but she she really modeled caring about food and caring about weight. So I remember her kind of like stepping on the scale, stepping off the scale, stepping on the scale, stepping off the scale and, you know, substituting, you know, different ingredients for fat in baking and cooking because, you know, it was like the 80s and, and uh, you know, it's like, like everyone was obsessed with low fat and so, um, so, you know, she, it was always like, okay, well I had, I didn't try butter for the first time until I was like 13 or something. Um, yeah, like it was all margarine and, you know, I replaced half the oil with this and that kind of thing. So, you know, from a really young age, um, thinness and, you know, quote unquote healthy eating or low fat eating and things like that was really, uh, valued in my family. And, um, my dad, uh, he, he would make comments to not, not about me, but, you know, I remember him talking about like, you know, a family friend's daughter being really pretty, but she's fat, you know, and this other woman being really pretty, but she's fat. And, um, my parents, uh, divorced when I was, or they separated when I was eight and my stepmom, my dad remarried and the stepmom that he was with for 15 years, uh, Honestly, I can't remember a time when she wasn't on a diet. Like it was like she was on the Atkins diet and she's on the this diet and she's on that diet. And and he was always really encouraging of that and always telling her she needed to exercise because she struggled with her weight. So even though like I don't recall um, my parents or the people around me telling me that like I needed to ever lose weight or anything like that, it was really modeled around me. And it's interesting because I look back now and I was actually like a like a really thin kid. Like I was like, I was, you know, I played a lot of sports and I just, I was a really late developer. So, I mean, it wasn't until like high school that I actually, you know, I certainly, I just, I don't think I ever really like needed to lose weight in the kind of sense that we believe people need to lose weight in our society. Um, but, you know, I was always so aware of it and I was just terrified of, of being overweight. So, and I remember, you know, with girlfriends in elementary school dieting and, you know, trying to go as long as possible without eating. And I actually remember being weighing pounds as a child. <laughs> like, I remember, I have that memory. And then I remember once I started to go over that number, being really scared. So it was like, even from like when, I don't know how old like a kid who would be when it's normal for them to pounds, but like I was really young. I was probably like seven or eight, (laughs) you know, was really afraid of gaining weight and of getting bigger. So, so I guess like, and then, and then uh, the interesting thing, like as you tied into food, I mean, I guess that's more my relationship to weight, but yeah, well, it's all related for sure. Exactly. And so, and there was a real um, association with comfort. So, which, you know, of course is not uncommon, but I mean, I remember anytime my brother or I um, were injured. So like, you know, we were like pretty active kids. So it's like, I broke my collarbone or I broke my, you know, knocked out my front teeth because I biked into a car, like, (laughs) um, you know, when my brother broke his leg and, you know, we were always kind of injuring ourselves and we would uh, go to Dairy Queen and we'd get a blizzard. And that was kind of like our, like, you know, our comfort was to go and, and have food um, or have a treat, right? And when my parents split up, uh, my mom worked evenings a lot of the time. And But every Thursday night, we would do 
uh, drive-through and must-see TV. Did you guys have must-see TV? Oh, yes. You remember that? Yeah. So yeah. Friends think, and like, Seinfeld and like ER. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was great. So so we would like, like I would go to dance or whatever and then we would, you know, stop and get like a pizza or through the drive or like some other form of drive-through or A&W or something and then we would watch must-see TV. And so it was like one of the experiences where – I think I did feel intimate and connected and, um, you know, seen and as opposed to the many nights where like my brother and I were kind of left to fend for ourselves and we didn't have family dinners and, uh, we, we stopped having family dinners when my parents split up. So I think there was this real association with, um, not only with like the comfort after, um, being injured or being sick or anything like that, but also like this feeling of, of connection with my family that was associated with family dinners. So, yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think those were kind of like the most um, formative areas or places where I felt like a connection to food and I had a relationship to weight. Um, and then I, it really changed, um, you know, it got more dramatic as I got into high school. And I don't know how far you want me to go on in terms of like my relationship to food as a kid. Like, Yeah, no, I think that the high school thing, I think, is where it gets interesting for a lot of people because it, it's like – going through puberty as a woman, really as anyone, you know, because a lot of people put on some weight before they grow. That's a normal part of development, but it's, you know, seen in isolation. People could be like, oh my God, I'm getting fat. I'm gaining weight. You know, what's happening? Yeah. So, and it's funny because, so another place I was like very aware of my body is, as I said, I was like a really late developer. I don't want to joke that I like never developed because I never, I don't have like a large chest or anything like that. But, um, but so I was very aware of the fact that I was flat chested and people teased me about that. And like, so this was a place and like, even like, I remember my, my, my brother teasing me about that and like his friends and, um, you know, everyone in, in, and that was still like in elementary school. So again, there was this like connection of self-worth to my body and my appearance and like just this awareness that I wasn't good enough based on um, my body. So in grade eight, I actually grew six inches. So like, it was like, I just like sprouted and I had been like, I went from being like five feet to five, six and in, in, you know, I, less than a year. And so, so, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, like I was like really quickly developing and, but it wasn't until about like grade 10 that I then became aware, like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm gaining weight. And all of a sudden, like I'm developing this like woman's body. Um, and it's, it's not okay. Like this is not right. And my friends around me, um, there were a couple of other ones who are still like my dearest, closest friends and they're, they have really good relationships to food and stuff now, but we kind of all at the same time developed this really conflicted relationship to food. And so we, we would get into this habit of like, I mean, it's like, it's so funny what you think is healthy at the time, right? So I don't know. Do you guys have Mr. Noodles? Is that a thing that you have? No, no. Oh, okay. okay. Or it's like, is that it's Canadian? That, it must be a Canadian thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sapporo Ichiban or like a kind of, it's almost oh, like, oh yes, yes. Ramen. And, um, yeah. It comes in like a cup and, uh, totally. And I remember, you know, I would, I wouldn't have breakfast and then I would, you know, not eat all day. And then at the, you know, or at lunch or whatever, I'd get like a, a one of these Mr. Noodles or like ramen cups from the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, it's like, I don't even know what's in there. Um, but, yeah. uh, but, you know, it would have that and then would try not to eat, would try not to eat. And that, and uh, I remember us, us doing the same thing with like yogurt. Like we would, we would have like, we'd have these like these safe foods or whatever, right? Which obviously is not um, uncommon. And so that, that went on for a little bit and it was okay. But I was also like, you know, I played soccer. I played on like three soccer teams and played you know, tennis and like, and was, and was dancing. And was like I, one of those kids that just did everything. And so 
when I was about, uh, I remember, I actually remember really vividly when I was 15, um, was the, so I developed bulimia basically at, at that age, um, which then transformed. But so I remember being 15, we used to go to my dad's for Tuesday night dinners. It was, and you know, maybe in, for their experience, they were a positive thing. I'm not sure, but I know my brother and I, like we had a really tough time going over there and it was always something we kind of felt like we had to do and we felt like we could never do anything right. And we felt like we were always upsetting either him or my stepmom. And so I remember, I don't know what we got in a fight about, but there was one night where we got in a fight and I was just like so frustrated. And I think I just felt so alone and felt so like, you know, lost. And I'm like, you know, I was a very angsty teenager at 15 who like loved Eminem and kickboxed in my basement. And, um, you know, was like, don't feel feelings. Like there are, you know, beats some sort of like power through it and so I just like it was it was so strange like I don't really remember exactly why but I just decided um you know I was gonna throw up my dinner and it was uh you know like we had had pasta and I think I told myself that like that was bad because it was also when I was starting to explore you know losing weight and things like that so so I did and I was like amazed that it worked and you know quote unquote worked (laughs) I can say that now I was like oh god we knew. So then it just became this habit and it became this thing that I did. And, you know, it obviously looking back now, I totally see it was like this way of dealing with my feelings that I didn't have, that wasn't, didn't have the capacity or knowledge or coping skills to deal with in a, in a way. And that was just kind of like what worked for me at the time. And so then I got in this habit of, because I was also restricting, you know, then binging after school when my mom was at work until 9 p.m., and then, you know, purging and then restricting, then, you know, and then binging and purging as we know. And so it just like, yeah, exactly. So I got into that cycle. And so that started when I was about 15. And so that it just, and it carried on. And it was interesting because like, I, I remember I told one of my girlfriends, the one of the ones who was also kind of like um, weight obsessed, like I was, and she actually confided in me that she too struggled with it. And so we both kind of had this, like, there was this, this connection there. And like this, that was like my first experience of like not having as much shame around it, but then still feeling so lost and, you know, confused and, um, you know, anxious about it all and shameful and everything. Right. You knew it was, it was not a good thing. Just. Yeah, exactly. Like it was definitely never, I never had that like really romantic experience with with it that, um, you know, I've, I've heard qualitatively or clients have told me about where, you know, it's something that they really look forward to or enjoy. Like there was always this kind of like, I was always really conflicted and there was always a lot of shame around it, but it, it essentially was this like emotional release for me and a way of, of, you know, turning off whatever I was going through and coping with the feelings I didn't have the um, skills to cope with. Yeah. You know, and then of course the the actual just restricting and, you know, it's going to put you into starvation mode, right? So that physiological thing happening there as well. Yeah. So the binges were probably inevitable from that standpoint. Totally, totally. So, um, so that carried on and, you know, I mean, it, it then so then I went off to university um like so that was like a psych so I went off at I just turned 18 like my birthday's at the end of August and you know I left like September 1st or something and uh so I just turned 18 and went off to university and l- lived in dorms 
And, you know, there were a couple of things that were actually really helpful for me there in terms of, you know, I don't know if I actually did a ton of the actual internal work, but because I was living in dorms where I would go to a cafeteria with other people to eat, I started to develop a bit of a different relationship around like meals and food and having a bit more structured meals. Um, And it was just, it was just more challenging for me to binge because I didn't have, you know, all this food in hand and I had like a meal plan that I, you know, I couldn't just like use liberally, right? There was a set amount on there. And so, so, you know, in some ways, like, objectively, I seemed like I was doing better then because there were less symptoms, but definitely still struggling with all like the thoughts and the feelings and the obsession with my weight and like, you know, feeling like I had to go spend hours in the gym. Oh, and that was something that I, you know, developed a relationship to in high school as well was like exercise, right? In a different way than sports. So I'd always played tons of sports and danced and everything, but um, I started going to the gym in high school, right? Like that, like, okay, I need to go and I need to like run on the treadmill. I need to lift weights and that kind of so this sort of like more functional, like utilitarian relationship with the gym where it's like, this is for a purpose to, to lose weight, to burn calories as opposed right. to fun and connect and like, you know, be healthy and everything like that. Yeah, that instrumental relationship with exercise came into play. Instrumental, exactly. Great word. So so I was doing that in university too. And so like for the first couple of years, because I lived in dorms, it wasn't quite as bad, I guess, like objectively, but you know, I would, anytime I would go home or like going home at Christmas or holidays or for the summer, like there, it just put me into this panic mode because I knew I didn't have a sense of a sense of control. And I just kind of knew it was waiting for me. But one thing that did help, um, in that time was I, I, I got my first boyfriend and, or my first real boyfriend, you know, like I'd had sort of very uh, superficial relationships in high school or like, you know, hooked up with people and things like that. But I got my first boyfriend who really just like adored me and he was just such oh my gosh to this day he was just like the kindest most wonderful person and his sister struggled really intensely with bulimia and so he really he knew all about it you know he was like he almost knew too much <laughs> like you know and so when I finally one day told him about it um he was just like he was so incredibly supportive and he just like you know still which was really helped mitigate a lot of the shame I was feeling but he also really really wanted me to get better and I I don't think I was in a place where I was I was ready to change you know I think it was it was for me that felt safe and comfortable for me right now as uncomfortable as it was right so more comfortable than dealing with the underlying emotions that you didn't have the the capacity to deal with yet yeah. exactly and so you know um we dated for almost 2 years and you know, there were there were a number of things that I think led to um, me ultimately breaking up with him. But, uh, you know, I, I always felt this kind of pressure that I had to get better. And I don't think I believed in myself that I could. And so I just felt like I was letting him down. And so there was there was that piece there. And, and you know, at that point, I had told my mom and she was like she was really supportive. But, you know, I, I did kind of feel this like from the few people, the handful of people that I knew, and I may have just imparted this on myself, um, but I, I did feel this kind of this pressure to get better. And so as a result, yeah. a weird roundabout way, I felt like I was like letting people down. I had that experience too, actually. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Totally. And then I and then I, I was immediately regretful that I told my mom because I, I feel like she was then sort of monitoring me and trying to help me but in a way that felt very like taking over or totally or like you know the questions that they think are helpful oh, so aren't right. that are like you know do you really need to eat that or like ha- you don't you think you've had enough or like right you know, like, right what were you doing in the bathroom were you purging in there you know mm-hmm. so so and then the other thing that happened too was I I had gotten in a car accident when I was um 
actually, no, I, I got in a car accident my first summer of university and I was like totally, I came out completely fine physically, but I was really um, shaken by it and I got like a PTSD diagnosis and, and wasn't able to drive. But as a result, I, I got therapy for the first time. Um, and so, well, and, you know, I'd had therapy as a kid too, but this was like my first experience of therapy where, um, you know, I was more cognitive and more self-aware. And uh, so I, I, that was the first place that I started to explore my eating disorder with a therapist. So, um, you know, I don't, we, we sort of scratched the surface and there was a like lim- limited number of sessions, of course. And like we were doing the EMDR and everything for the the trauma and whatnot. So it was, it was a part of our work, but we didn't really get deeply get into it. So that was kind of, but, but I was, I think there was, there were nuggets or there were little seeds planted there of, of desire for change and like hope for change and being able to imagine like a different life where I wasn't totally consumed by thoughts of food and like losing weight, which is what my life revolved around. And it's interesting that that, I mean, it sounds like that was a positive experience with that therapist too, that you were able to sort of voice your real feelings about it. And she gave some support that was yeah, it was, um, you know, it's funny, because when I look back on it now, and I remember how she reacted, I mean, I think as a therapist myself, like that wouldn't be the reactions that I might have. Like, I remember, mm-hmm. I, I, it took me a really long time to tell her. And I was finally like, look, I think there's something important that I need to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, you know, have been struggling with bulimia for the past X number of years. And she kind of said, like, um, yeah, like, that is important. And you should have told me. And she probably meant it in a way that's like, yeah, like, like it's important. It's significant wanting to validate my experience. But how I heard it was like bad, Megan You should have told me earlier, you've been keeping information from me. So there was still kind of this like discomfort around talking about it. And I still didn't even have, I didn't even have like the vocabulary for it at that point. Cause you haven't told, like, it, it's so hard to tell people when you're in that stage and it just even like, the word like made me lose my breath right Um, and and like just feel so anxious and just kind of like go into that like fight or flight mode so and of course like the more you talk about it the easier it becomes um there was that and then um so then the the first two years of university was in dorms and it was kind of like somewhat mitigated by that but then my next two years of university were um I moved into like this like pod style housing and all of us, like, I mean, I lived with a bunch of girlfriends and we were there. They're all still like good friends, but we all had pretty like fucked up relationships to food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As again, like most women do. Most women, unfortunately. Yeah. I think it's hard to live with a group of women and not have totally. some of that. You know? Totally. Especially in college, university. And so like we were always trying to find out like what was the next low calorie thing and let's all go to the gym. Mm-hmm. And there was this like a bit of a competitive nature between everyone. But, you know, and I know um, like at least one of the other girls also struggled struggled with bulimia and so but like you know we had this like it was like still a communal bathroom so it was just it was it got worse and then again like it you know the symptoms started coming back at least you know from a like diagnostic perspective but right. the triggers were probably and the triggers and the availability yeah exactly higher yeah totally totally and you know again it's like you're purchasing your own food and you can eat at any time now and you have like mm-hmm. a pantry as opposed to this sort of more structured meals as that we used to all go down to the cafeteria together and have our meals together and stuff so so you know then i i gained i put on, gained some weight and um again was like super highly aware and then also was like drinking a lot so i drank a lot throughout university and partied a ton and you know um, was one of those people who never went to class and then just like studied a couple days before the exam and like did really well because it was psych and you could just memorize everything. <laughs> and, uh, and so, 
and you know I, I mean I had tons of fun but I was also like had a pretty um you know I look back on it now and I'm my relationship to alcohol was not very good either um, and there's, you know, alcoholism and anorexia are rampant in my family and like anxiety. So it really, I mean, I was, I was experiencing all of the things that, uh, you know, had, had both been kind of like modeled for me, but also, you know, maybe transgenerational in my family. And um, I, you know, I also should have mentioned too, that I had struggled with like depression and anxiety for like as long as I could remember as well. Um, but really like it was all under this like umbrella of perfectionism of just like believing I wasn't good enough and being really hard on myself and having super high expectations on myself and not being able to feel uncomfortable feelings and just being like so afraid of failure and so afraid of being over good enough and stuff. So that's very depressing and anxiety producing to have all those feelings. Exactly. And I could never really just like have fun and be in the moment. So, so then I, I finished university, but I actually went on to do my master's in, in counseling psychology, which was a three-year program. Um, and so, but I went straight through and, you know, I got into a very prestigious program where there were like several hundred applicants and they ended up taking, there were eight people in my graduating class. And I was like the youngest by 20 years. And, and so it was, it's not that it was like a super high pressure program. Like the, the workload was, I'd say like less than my undergrad was, but mm. I put a lot of pressure on myself and I always had this kind of like imposter syndrome going on. Yeah. That's rare. I feel like in a graduate program to be one of the youngest ones. Cause I went back to grad school at 28 and I was like the old person, you know, most of my classes. Yeah. I think with, um, with counseling psych, it's a little different cause they want you to have like the life experience and they want you to have like, have been out there in the field. And so for me, because I always knew I wanted to be a therapist, like I was volunteering on the crisis sign at like 19, you know, or on the suicide hotline. And I was like, you know, working in the lab and I was kind of doing everything, you know, alongside my like very hardcore party lifestyle. I was still had this part of me that knew I wanted to go on to grad school. Um, and so that it was important to, to, you know, do that sort of stuff. So I was kind of trying to set myself up for it. But, um, so what happened after my undergrad, I went traveling and I went to Europe just for the summer. And when I came back, I, uh, a couple of things happened. One was like, I broke up with my boyfriend that I'd been dating for the past two years, who was also like an incredibly supportive, wonderful guy. And I got a job at a gym and I'd always wanted to be a personal trainer. And like, it was just something that I was like, you know, I like, I, I love working out. I love exercise. I'm really interested in like the human body and anatomy and of course, you know, weight loss <laughs> and being fit. And so I, I got a job at a gym and I got my personal training certification and I was like just starting this master's program and had just broken up with my boyfriend. And like, so it was kind of like all this stress going on and I, my, the bulimia, transformed into anorexia so like I mean again it's like you know all under the same umbrella and it's not like I wasn't I you know I was still occasionally making myself throw up here and there but for the most part it was like very strict you know calorie limit and uh you know exercising an insane amount you know a couple hours a day at least and weighing myself a couple of times a day and just you know I I stopped drinking I start I had I started really isolating myself and being like oh you know I have to I have work to do I can't go out but it was really I don't want to eat I don't want to drink I don't want to be around people who will question me and like you know they'll sort of buy into or I mean they'll they'll be able to tell you know, what I'm doing, right? Like, cause I knew. So you knew. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally knew. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm just healthy. It was. At first it was like that. At first it was like, oh no, I'm just like, you know, I, I've gained all this weight from Europe and I like, I'm just trying to be healthy and I just need to get back to where I was before. And, you know, oh, look at me. Oh, I didn't realize I could like, I could make my body come to this place because I was like the fittest, quote unquote, fittest in my eyes I'd ever been. Um, but it, it really did start to get uh, out of control. And 
Yeah, I mean, and then the other thing, so I started dating this guy as well who, you know, he's also a wonderful guy, but he was very different from the, my first two boyfriends. He was a lot more like my dad. And uh, he was, I think, very, he, he wasn't the most emotionally intelligent guy at that time. And so he didn't, and he wasn't super affectionate. And so I, of course, interpreted that as like me not being good enough and me not being thin enough. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, thinking that, okay, well, you know, what I've learned growing up is that men value thinness. So if I lose weight, then he might love me you know, or, or act as though he loves me or give me more affection. And this was, by the way, this, he did not feel this way at all. Like he, you know, I, I know like in the few times that we did talk about it over the course of our like three year relationship, he was always very much like, you know, I want you to put on weight. Like I, I mm -hmm. like you better when you're like this, more this size. And, but was just kind of a naturally emotionally withholding person or exactly. Less, and yeah. so, and I was so self-loathing at that time. Like I didn't have the capacity to give myself like love or compassion. And I really looked for it in other people. Hence me having been in relationships basically for like seven years straight at this point. So many parallels. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So, so this that. like kind of um, perfect storm of like the stress of the master's program and not really feeling like I fit in and then working at the gym and, you know, the breakup with my boyfriend before and then like having this new relationship with this boyfriend whom I didn't feel like loved or accepted by. I just like found my control around restricting and around overexercising. And so that went on for basically like three years. I was struggling with the anorexia and I remember like, so many people having interventions with me and like you know it's like my you know my my best friend like crying after she saw me in a hot tub and was just like like I don't know like I don't know what to do like I'm so worried about you and like I remember my, my brother was living in Singapore at the time I'm um, teaching tennis and I remember he saw a picture of me like at New Year's and he like sent me this Facebook message and my brother's also not a super emotional person he is more so now but he wasn't at that time and like, he just sent me this message where it was just like, so concerned and was like, I'm so worried about you. Like what is going on? I saw this picture. And, and so, you know, there was a lot of concern from people, but there was also like, like, I remember my aunt taking me out for tea and my aunt sort of this like staunch feminist. And she was just like, don't you think you're being a bad feminist by like buying into media's, you know, perception of what women should be like, don't you, you know, it, and so there was almost this shaming as well. Um, like, don't you think you're being silly? And I remember another girlfriend of mine being like, you're smarter than this. You know, you're smarter than this. And like, it was just. It's coming from a good place probably, but it's. Kind of like that tough love, right? But Yeah, it's sort of shaming and, and critical. It's It probably parallels the critical voice going on in your head, right? Totally, totally. But and then so I kind of had this like, fuck them attitude that was like, well, no, like I'm in like, you know, you want me to change. I don't respect what you said to me. So I'm not going to change, you know? Right. Totally rebellious. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and yeah, and I mean, my my even like my dad, I remember who's like not a super emotional person. Like I remember him sitting me down and just being like, "What's what is going on with you?" Like, you, but I think his perspective was like, "It's not a good look. <laughs> you don't you don't look good." Like, right. Oh. So it was still around appearance and things like that. I was having a lot of yeah. There was a lot of there were a lot of kind of like interventions here and there, but I mean it. And it's strange because I remember too, like looking in the mirror before I would get into the shower and just being like horrified and disgusted. Like I was like, I hate myself. I was still like empowered by it. So, um, you know, I think it, there really was that piece around the control and just like watching the number go down on the scale was like so fulfilling for me. Um, but I do remember one time, like actually being quite scared um, when I, 
I had been quite sick. So I was having all sorts of other problems too, right? Because like, as we know, you know, our body uh, breaks down. Yeah, exactly. Body breaks down. So I got into this weird thing where I, this was, it was not self-induced at all, but I got diagnosed with something called cyclic vomiting or cyclical vomiting. It's re- related to, I think, something with, with my hormones or like my lack of hormones as a result. And so about once a month, I would just be like put out on the floor, like sick, throwing up and like there was no explanation for it and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, I remember there was, uh, you know, but even even when that was happening, like I still would go to the gym every day, you know, and I would still like go for a run every day. Yeah. And, and I remember one day like being at the gym and weighing myself and I was like at my lowest weight and I felt like really dizzy and I felt really dehydrated and I knew I was dehydrated. Like I knew, I mean, I'd just been like sick for the past week. And I was forcing myself to like, you know, go on the stair climber or whatever. And, and I just like, I remember feeling scared for the first time. Like, the, and I think it was the only time to be honest, like where I actually was like, I, I could kill myself because like, so ironically, I mean, I'd gone into psychology partially, mostly because of this. I mean, partially because you know, I wanted to help people and be a therapist. And that was kind of the role I'd been placed in since I was eight years old. But, but a big part of it was wanting to understand myself and wanting to understand the bulimia that, you know, I when I was 15. So I became like really obsessed with eating disorders and like eating disorder research. And I, you know, learned them inside out. And I knew I was like, I could have like a heart arrhythmia, you know, like I could, I could technically like my, you know, uh, electrolytes could be off and I could, I could drop dead. Like, and, and I kind of like took this, like these feelings that I was having physically and, um, you know, emotionally. And I was like, you know what, I think I'm, I think I'm going to leave. And I, and I left the gym and it was like, kind of this like, eye-opening moment for me but it's still you know there was still then I mean at least a couple of years of, of me struggling with anorexia and so so then it almost reached this point and you know you hear about this but it reached this point where it just like it got so hard <laughs> like it, it kind of reached a point where it was like I couldn't I almost felt like I couldn't do it anymore and that was actually like one of the hardest points because I found myself having more trouble keeping the weight off and it was just like torture. So I would just find myself like running all the time and just crying. And like, you know, anytime I saw myself and I became aware that I might've gained like a pound or two, there was like this extreme anxiety. Um, and I just remember crying a lot during that period of my life. Like I just spent so much time crying. Oh, I've totally had clients go through that too. It's like that sort of awareness that your body's changing and it has to, but there's nothing you can do to stop yeah, it. Yeah, and I was like in the midst of this like major depression, and I was just like, I mean, I look back at pictures of myself now, and I was still like painfully thin, and but in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, like I've like gained this much weight, and I'm so, and I just remember like before going out with girlfriends and stuff, like n- or deciding not to go out because I like couldn't find anything to wear and because I was too fat, even though I was like, you know, very underweight. So that again, this carried on until like basically the end of my masters, but then a few things happened, so. Which I'm, I'm all like, you know, so grateful for because none of it, I, I feel like my recovery, like none of it was really my own doing. <laughs> like it was all just kind of circumstance. And so one thing that did happen before the end of my master's that was helpful was I stumbled on this website and it was called bulimiahelp.org. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And I think it's, it's, it's oh, you have? Okay, yeah. So it's changed a lot since, since you know, when I stumbled upon it. But it was basically like just, I remember there was something like 7,000 
people who belonged to this forum, essentially, where people just post blo- posted blogs and their own experiences of like struggling with bulimia. And I think in my head too, at that point, I, st- I never really thought, oh, I'm struggling with anorexia. I was like, oh no, I'm struggling with bulimia still because once in a while I would still make myself throw up, but I wasn't binging anymore. I just thought they were binges, right? In my head, I was like, oh no, I'm having too much, but it's like, oh my God, I had like X amount of calories, which is like less than, you know, what would be a healthy number for a healthy, you know. And so, so that was one thing where I started to like, feel this connection, I think, to other people who are struggling and feel empowered to both, to both, you know, change for myself, but also like this kind of camaraderie and this community of people who was like struggling and wanting to help them through recovery and so and, and through helping myself. So, so that was one thing that happened before. But the, the probably like the three major things that happened for me then, and this was at like, I just turned 25, I think, let me think how old I was. No, I just turned 24. I can't remember. I was one of them. I was either 24 or 25. So I got dumped. So the guy that I'd been with for three years, who I totally thought was going to like, I was going to marry and we were going to like have this life together. And I was just finishing my master's. And he was, he had one more year left in his master's. He was doing a master's in physio, physiotherapy or physical therapy, you guys call it here. And, uh, and, um, so I, uh, you know, had this totally thought like my life was set and this is what's going to happen. And even though I was absolutely miserable in every aspect of my life, I was like, no, this is the life I'm supposed to be living. And uh, so pretty, pretty out of the blue, at least in my opinion, um, I, he, he dumped me. I mean, and honestly, understandably so, like I would have been so miserable to be with at that point. But um, this, this was like shattering for me on so many levels, right? Because I was like, but wait, like, no, if I'm thin enough, which I still was very thin at that point, then you're supposed to love me and you're not supposed to leave me because that's what's important. And that's like why men date women is because they're thin, right? And, you know, had this like really fucked up worldview absolutely shattered and turned upside down at that point because I was like wait a second I'm like the youngest person in history basically to finish this master's program I like had you know had had like a really prestigious clinical placement like I'd you know was just finishing my thesis and like and you know was at this like extremely low weight and was just kind of like felt like I was checking off all the right boxes and then he was like I can't be with you anymore and so that it was helpful in the sense that like one it turned upside down my worldview which needed to be shaken up it sounds like totally need to be sure shaken up like experientially too right because people always tell you like oh no like that's not what's most important but I was like no like weight is the most important so the other thing um that it that it um inspired for me was like I mean you know for any of us and and you know most people have been through some form of grief on some level um but you know heartbreak is definitely grief and Going through heartbreak, uh, which was something I'd feared my entire life, by the way, because, you know, I'd witnessed my mom go through it and not get out of bed for 10 years. And um, so, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but, you know, she was very, she was very, very affected, you know, on an example and was, you know, it was 10 years, I think, before there wasn't a day that passed that she didn't cry. Um, and so... I really, really feared heartbreak. And it's like, I just like went face first, like, or head first into the, my worst, worst fear. And I had always coped with difficult feelings by just like muscling through and just telling myself to be stronger and just get over it. And I, I couldn't do that in this situation. Like that did not work. And I would wake up every day. I remember I used to dream of, of still being with my ex at night. Um, and then I would wake up and I'd have this little like pocket where I thought that my dream was reality and I felt okay. And then just like the reality sunk in and it's just like this flooding of pain and sadness and grief and loss and loneliness and like all of these really uncomfortable feelings. And a couple things happened through that. I, uh, one, a girlfriend of mine gave me a book called uh, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Yeah, which was like the most life-changing book I've ever read. And the other thing that happened like kind of simultaneously was one day I just woke up and I was like, hey, sadness, you know, nice, nice to see you. Like, 
come hang out, right? Like it was like this kind of like guest that was always going to be there. And I tried to push away and tried to like tell not to come visit, but I was just finally like, all right, fine, you can be here, you know? And so in, in that, I started to learn how to make space for difficult feelings and how to like let them be there and relate to them in a different way, at least by permitting them to be there. You know, I don't, I hadn't quite at that point learned how to be self-compassionate, but a big part of self-compassion is being able to like make space for your uncomfortable feelings. So I had that really experiential experience of sitting with my uncomfortable feelings. And so, so there was that. Um, and then the other couple of things that happened, um, one was um, actually right at the end of my master's program, I did start learning and reading about self-compassion and became really interested in it. So I started reading a lot of like Paul Gilbert's work and Kristen Neff's work. And like, I, I really conceptually understood it. I just didn't know how to use it with myself. So but I was super interested in it and I'd been introduced to it. So there were those things. And then the other thing, the third thing, I know I said two before, now I'm remembering three. But the third really impactful thing was, um, so I had gotten so many injuries from over-exercising. So I'd had like IT band syndrome and piriformis syndrome and extensor tendonitis and all these things that like prevented me from being able to exercise. But because I was like such a, like I was so obsessed with exercise and I had to do something every day. Like I was the person who, if I had a flight at like 5 a.m., I would, because I had keys to the gym, I would break into the gym at like three in the morning and like, on the treadmill for two, oh, like I literally no. go run on the treadmill before mm. catching my flight at five in the morning. And um, so I was so uncomfortable with going a day without exercise. Like I could not imagine what that would be like. And, but I had all of these injuries. And so I had to keep going to my own physical therapist. And, you know, finally he was like, Megan, like he like basically shook me and was like, you cannot, if you keep working out, you're never going to be able to work out again. Like you're going to ruin your body for life. And so like, you cannot go to the gym. Like, no, you're not allowed to run. You're not allowed to do this. And like, he really like, he, he actually, you know, through him, that was one place where maybe scare tactic kind of worked for me. And, um, anybody said, but you know what you can do? You can do yoga. And I was like, fuck yoga. Like I tried, uh, you know, many years before. And I was like, this is so boring. This isn't a workout. This is stretching. Like, what am I supposed to do? I like, I'm bad at this and this and that. But I mean, out of desperation, I was like, well, it's better than, than nothing. And so I started going to yoga and, and you know, like at first it was like, okay, oh, I'm actually like sweating here. Oh, it, it does feel like a bit of a workout here. So at first it was like, you know, just this desperately trying to find some form of exercise. But I also still hated it. Like I was still like every, every time when I was like, this is the worst. I hate yoga so much, but it's all I have to do it. It's all I can do. Um, but you know what? I started actually finding I was coming to maybe not quite enjoy it, but I was having like a different experience in yoga. There was something different that was happening there that I couldn't quite put my finger on, but it was like just, you know, the experience of noticing. I think it was, it was first, it was like awareness that came out of it. So it was the experience of noticing I was judging myself and noticing that I was comparing myself to other people and noticing I was being really hard on myself and just noticing like, oh, look, I fell out of this pose and being like, oh, like you're so bad at this or looking around the room and being like, that girl's skinnier than you, that girl's skinnier than you, you know, you're no longer the skinniest person in the room, like you're a failure kind of thing. So I started to become aware of the critical voice. I wasn't actually in a place where I was ready to change it yet, but I started to become aware of it. That's a huge step in and of itself, rather than having it just be like the backdrop of your life. It's like, yeah, exactly. Because I had never really made that connection before, like, which is interesting, because I mean, I was surrounded by the literature on it and everything. But my experiences in therapy, no one had ever actually brought that up. I always like very Rogerian therapists who were just kind of like, 
you know, um, reflecting and, and, you know, paraphrasing and empathizing and things like that, which is really helpful. But I think I needed someone to point out to me like, hey, it's interesting. Like, you know, your dialogue with yourself, it sounds like you're quite hard on yourself. That was such a turning point for me, too, because I, I had a very similar experience with like different therapists and different modalities of therapy where one was like psychodynamic and just made me feel like more and more like, oh my God, why do I do this? Why do I do that? And then another one was like very Rogerian, like everything's great. Yeah. You're okay. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Unconditional positive regard. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so sweet and helpful, but like also didn't give me that insight that I needed. Exactly. So I started to like become aware of the critical voice. And I was also, um, you know, transitioning out of, of course, I just finished my master's and I was like trying to find a job and finding a job I found like very challenging and I kept getting rejected from places. And so I was constantly getting practice with these uncomfortable feelings that I'd been avoiding my whole life through perfectionism. So I'd always like made sure that I was only doing things I could succeed at or that I would never fail at or that I knew I could do. And this was my first experience of like, okay, not only had I been rejected through heartbreak and was dealing with all of that, but now I was being constantly rejected with job applications. And so I started to become a little bit more comfortable with it. And I think being single and dealing with these difficult feelings, I almost had like no choice but to start to be a little bit nicer to myself. And I was, you know, some of this stuff was like, whether it be through osmosis or like subconsciously, or if I was actively putting into practice, I was starting to practice more of like the self-compassion thing. And so because I couldn't get a job and I was starting to realize there was a benefit in yoga for me, I, I just got a job at a yoga studio. And, you know, it was like I was I was cleaning the mats for like twelve dollars an hour and like checking people in. And, you know, here I was after like seven years of school and my prestigious program and all that. And I was like, it was it was this really interesting experience of having to, again, had these feelings of like shame and inadequacy, you know, relate to them in a different way than I always had because I had I had to deal with them like I had to live with them. So so there was that piece. And then I also um, because I I'd really disconnected myself through through the anorexia. I had, like, I I'd really disconnected myself from my friends, from my closest friends, from my family. Like, I, so I was, I was really lonely. And again, kind of out of desperation, I, I felt like I had to reach out to people and I knew that I needed connection. And so, you know, I remember these like really uncomfortable Facebook messages I sent to people that were like, hey, I know we're like not really friends, but do you ever want to like get a coffee? Or like, I know we don't really know each other that well, or I know I haven't talked to you in three years. Like, and again, I mean, some of that, it, it had been really helpful because like I had led groups on depression and things like that. And I, that was like one of the strategies that's like reconnect with old friends. And I was like, oh, I guess I could try to put this into practice. So I started to do that. And then I kind of started to party again, to be honest. And it's interesting because the partying was like, I felt like that was, that was one way I could connect with people. But in a weird way, it actually was really helpful for like weight restoration <laughs> because you know, I was, I mean, I was drinking a lot and like I was, you know, eating when I was drinking and, you know, I had to go to these events where there was food and it was just impossible to keep my weight at the low weight that it was. So, um, so between like, you know, having to feel my difficult feelings and having my worldview turned upside down and like starting to develop a relationship to yoga and like learning how to be more introspective and be kinder to myself. And then like the actual like functional partying that also had this like weight restoration aspect by proxy, <laughs> I, you know, started to I guess like that was kind of like the real beginning of my recovery at that stage. So, um, and you know, I mean, that was, that was more than five years ago now. And 
I, it, it, I mean, it's taken a while. Like, it's not like it just all happened overnight. And as you know, I mean, as you said, like that, the stuff that like your clients are going through right now, where it's like you're putting on weight and that almost happens before you catch up emotionally and cognitively to the process, right? So it's like that happens first and it's just so, so painful. And I just remember being like, oh my God, I have stretch marks and I have this and that because it all happened pretty quickly. And, you know, I had, I had lost, was that, you know, I, I put on about half my body weight. So I like, I, I am now like, or I was, you know, two thirds of what I am now. And so it was significant, you know, and it was, it was pretty traumatic, I would say, um, to go through. Because, you know, it's also something where people think they're being helpful and they're like, oh, you look so healthy. And, and I just remember crying and like just like having to leave places because people told me I was healthy. And I was just so afraid of having pictures and Facebook photos tagged of me and things like that. Um, and really just like trying to hide from myself and like just not recognizing myself in mirrors and not actually knowing like not being aware of my body in a new way now because I would like walk into things and be like, oh my God, like my bum knocked this over. Oh my God, I have, you know, I have like a, my, my, my bum is like, it's huge, right? I can't fit through this small space anymore. Like, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, recovery certainly was not, it wasn't sunshine and, and rainbows. I was just thinking like I was talking to a colleague yesterday who like works at a treatment center and is like part of the administration of like a, a really value, you know, um, respected treatment center who was saying like I couldn't afford to go to my own treatment center like there has to be a better way to you know help people recover like in their own environments and you know there's there's got to be a way other than the sort of like traditional recovery path and like you're totally describing that and my experience was so similar it was like this winding path to recovery that wasn't like you're shipped off to residential treatment and you know you go through the whole process right it's like there are so many other ways that maybe happen serendipitously and that maybe like looking at it now I'm like I wouldn't necessarily recommend that anyone go out and like drink a bunch or you know my experience where it's like I wouldn't necessarily recommend getting into a codependent relationship with a foodie who makes you feel like you have to like keep up and eat all that he eats or you'll be rejected right like that's what that was my weight restoration and you know sort of beginnings of a more normal relationship with food and it's like that wasn't actually healthy emotionally but it got the job done in some ways right totally totally I mean we can be creative I think right and and maybe I think that's sort of a that's a, a skill that is helpful I think you know as in recovery but also just like in life right like for us to kind of be creative and not necessarily because you know I think the thing is too that um, so much of this, at least when I conceptualize it, is related to perfectionism, right? And this like expectation that we have to do things in a certain way and, you know, really needing to be able to predict and control and feel comfortable and certain and all of that. And so sometimes like, you know, doing things off the beaten path is actually like a, a corrective emotional experience in itself because it's like, hey, you know, you don't necessarily have to follow this like A to B pathway. Um, and, you know, and there are many roads to recovery and like neither is like better than the other. It's really just like what works for you. And yeah, and I think the the common thread too is like, you know, if the desire builds enough to like make a change and get help, like there's so many ways to do that, you know, like some people really do need the the structure and sort of containment of like a treatment center and they're maybe not going to get better without that or they're so medically compromised that like they could have a heart attack at any moment like without that. Exactly. And I think too like we sometimes again like our perfectionistic or like all or nothing thinking comes into play and thinks like oh you know I have to 
you know, it's either, it's either I'm recovered or I'm like in the throes of this eating disorder. And, you know, sometimes it is just about like moving the dial a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm just thinking now there actually was a time that I went to see a therapist when I was still in high school. And I remember kind of like take busing myself down to this, like this place um, and being so, so ashamed. And it was a horrible experience. Like, I think it was like the intake worker, you know, maybe she was, she was new or maybe she just was like highly unempathic, but it was like, you know, I had had a moment there where I was like, I need help and I want to get help. But then my experience, you know, unfortunately was not a super positive one. Uh, and so I didn't feel empowered to seek help again until, you know, I'd had the car accident and everything like that. Um, but so, I mean, I think like there are little pit stops along the way where maybe we, we do gain awareness or, you know, see that there's a different way, but it's just, that's just like not the, the timing, but that doesn't discount where we are in our journey. Like it, we're still, we're still in recovery, you know, in a way it's like, no, I kind of think like, as long as we're aware that there's a problem there, then we're always kind of in recovery, you know, like as long as it's a desire for change, then we're, we're in recovery, you know, and just because like the symptoms don't always decrease or there's like, you know, still the behaviors and things like that, it doesn't mean that we're not in recovery or we're not trying. Totally. I, I completely agree with that. And I also had a, a couple experiences that I always share on the podcast because I feel like it's valuable for people to hear that like this stuff sometimes comes up with when you see a therapist about an eating disorder who like doesn't get it, but to keep trying anyway, because there are people out there who get it. But like I totally saw a couple therapists in you know the early stages of my eating disorder where I tried to like crack the door open and be like I'm struggling with this or my family is concerned because of this you know and just like see what the reaction was going to be and see if maybe I could get some help for what I was going through and the responses were so invalidating that I just shut the door and didn't want to open it again for years you know well and the thing is too it's like when we're again high expectations on ourselves it's like we're not sick enough you know like oh well I'm not oh well like my BMI is only this so you know and sometimes people literally tell you that like I was like struggling and my fir the first therapist that I told she's like oh well you you couldn't have anorexia you're not thin enough like literally said that to me like she's like you're not a slight person you're not <gasps> you're not at risk like what Wait, oh my gosh oh see that just breaks my heart and like the misinformation and like lack of training out there but yeah or, or even things like I mean I was always on birth control and I so I still had a period at least until like it, I actually did eventually still lose it on birth control but for a while I still had a period even though I was I was at a pretty low weight and yeah like I mean that being a diagnostic criteria or used I don't know if it's is it still a diagnostic criteria? it's not anymore thank god yeah at that time it was that messed up a lot of people I think because obviously where do men fit into that too like so yeah I mean I think like for me and the way that I view it and the way that I now work with clients is like, first of all, like, I mean, as you can tell from my question about the DSM there, like, I don't look at it from like a diagnostic perspective. It's like, look, if you struggle with a, like, if you think your relationship to food is causing you distress in your life, let's like, let's work on that. Your relationship to food, weight, right? Um, I don't, I'm not going to sit there and be like, well, like, tell me how much you weigh and tell me exactly what you ate and blah, blah, blah. I mean, sometimes it is helpful from like a nutritional standpoint because yeah, like there are certain things that we might have that or diets we might follow that are going to lead to restriction or going to lead to binging, like no matter what. So it's important for that from that aspect. But I really try to, um, you know, both with myself and with my clients bring about this like self-compassion approach. And I mean, a huge part of that is recognizing the utility or like the instrumental, as you say, um, aspects of the eating disorder. So like for me, it was, it was a way of coping with my uncomfortable feelings. It was a way of connecting, you know, it was a way of escaping and numbing 
avoiding. And I needed that at the time, you know, and, and I would even go as far as to say with some clients, like, you know what, that was really brilliant of you. You know, that was really brilliant of you to come up with this way of coping at that time. Right. And it served you then, but it's not serving you anymore, you know? Um, and so being able to help take away that shame because there's so much shame in this, right? And so, I mean, that's a huge part of it, but really like, and, and I know like you've talked about self-compassion before, but you know, for any listeners who aren't really aware of, of what it means, it's, it's kind of this idea. It's not about believing that we're perfect or believing that we are like, you know, we're, we're, we have the most beautiful bodies or we're this, we're that. It's like, Hey, I am imperfect. Like every other human out there. And that's okay. I'm still worthy of love. I am still worthy of, you know, friendship and a good life. And I actually get to determine whether or not I am good enough and whether or not I beat myself up for existing in the way that I am. And I can choose, I am empowered to choose like, to treat myself as I would like a friend or someone who I really love. And, you know, there's that kind of like self-kindness aspect, but then a big part of it too is this idea of mindfulness, of course, which is, you know, being able to just like accept our thoughts and our feelings like without judgment and permit ourselves to, like I've said, like permit ourselves to feel sad and anxious and depressed and rejected and be able to be like, hey, it's totally understandable that you're feeling you know, I'll use the term rejected right now because, you know, you just didn't get the fourth job that you'd applied for or you just found it and like, you know, it, it hurts and you were really wanting it. And like rejection is a natural and healthy feeling. <laughs> so, so being able to really like permit ourselves to feel what we feel and think what we think and not judge ourselves for it and recognize that, you know, there's like an evolutionary component usually with our feelings and that our thoughts are like a product of our society and you know even the the desire to want to be thin like I even find you know I find myself still now it's like oh maybe you know I should try to lose a few pounds have those thoughts here and there and then it's like I mean I could beat myself up for having those thoughts right um but no the self-compassionate way is like hey look it makes sense that you want this you live in New York everyone is is pretty underweight I'm I'm part of the wellness industry, which I hate to say it, but is essentially a euphemism for the diet industry. And, you know, I'm surrounded by people on juice cleanses and who are gluten-free and this free and that free. And times feel like I'm doing something wrong because I'm like, you know, the plus size one of the group basically. And so, you know, being able to recognize like, okay, look, it's, it's, it's okay that I'm having these thoughts, but are they serving me? You know, like, let's, let's have a little reality check here and see, you know, because I think at the end of the day, we have to choose at least for a person like myself, who is not like a supernaturally thin person, um, I have the choice between like living a good life and like doing what I want to do and like being the weight that I am and that I'm meant to be or like killing myself and, and being like the weight that I, I, I quote unquote want to be or that I like think is my quote unquote ideal weight, which is not my ideal weight at all. I mean, I think, again, this is a ref- our, our media and our society tells us we have this ideal weight that's like lower than what we all actually are because you know, we're, we're, we're taught to believe that this like angular um you know kind of bony look is is what we're what is normal and healthy and what we're supposed to aspire to be but it's actually not at all for most right. of us anyway yeah and I think it's it's so like understandable that that especially given your history like those thoughts would still come up and those you know that like having been so attached to weight as a marker of worth for your whole life like it doesn't just go away overnight those thoughts don't just go away but yeah you can relate to them differently and not have to like follow what they say you know exactly and so and then and then third piece so there's like that kind of self-kindness piece there's that mindfulness piece and then the third piece of self-compassion is just this like idea that we're all in this together and this kind of like common humanity piece it's like you know what you're feeling right now is similar to what 
millions of other people are feeling in the world right now, you know, and, and where we all know that experience and we all know what it's like to feel not good enough, you know, or to feel unworthy or unloved or scared or underconfident or anxious or fearful or rejected or lonely or like all of these uncomfortable feelings that we, we, you know, most of us do feel um, frequently, you know, and, and, and that like they're, they're passing, like they're going to come and they're going to go. There's like that concept of impermanence or that, you know, self-compassion really comes from a, like a secular Buddhist philosophy, and uh, so just like recognizing that, yeah, like, you know, we're all in this together, we're all kind of fighting this fight, or, you know, having this, this universal experience of not good enoughness. <laughs> um, and but we're all kind of like, we're all kind of connected, and we're all sort of in this together and seeing it more as like a group effort than this um, competitive, comparative, like, you know, individual experience where we feel so alone, and we feel so much more shame as a result. And we feel like we're just like, the only person on the world that's dealing with it. And that's why I get so frustrated with like the positive thinking movements and like, you know, this, the, the happiness industry, because it really tries to sell people this idea that, you know, we should always feel happy all the time. And if you don't, or if you ever feel lonely, you know, or if you ever feel anxious, you know, you should either, you know, go get a prescription for something or, or, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're not trying hard enough. And so then people feel the shame around their difficult feelings. So that other piece of, you know, self-compassion is to just recognize that, like, everyone feels this stuff. And it's more about, like, how we react to our feelings. It's not about, it's not, our feelings are not bad, right? It's it's about how we react to them that's either serving for us or, or not serving. And if I reacted to my feelings of inadequacy by not eating all day, you know, is that going to be serving for me or not, Right. Or by, you know, going and over-exercising, like, on multiple levels. One, because it's it's not a self-compassionate thing to do to myself and to my body and, you know, causes a lot of stress alongside it. But also, I mean, it's, it's really, it's it just gets into the binge-restrict cycle, which we get from dieting. Yeah, it's all related, too. I mean, I think, like, you know, going back to the, the sort of idea of self-compassion as, like, common humanity, like, one of the sort of um, pushbacks I hear from clients about self-compassion and one of the things that I know I had too in my sickest moments was that like well I hold myself to a higher standard you know like I have to be better than everybody else because I know I have that potential or you know my like I don't get the same um, compassion that everybody else does because like I have to be better but I can say from the other side of that that like literally all the success that I've had in my life to whatever extent that I have like you know I have gotten that because of self-compassion not because of like quote holding myself to a higher standard like that did not work that actually because that sort of quote higher stand holding yourself to a higher standard disconnects you from other people and I was so lonely and I so wanted connection but I didn't see how holding myself quote to a higher standard was creating the conditions for my disconnection and like now I feel so loved and connected to other people because I'm like in it with them you know and not thinking that I have to be this like separate higher being or something that doesn't deserve the same love, you know? This quote-unquote success that we have when we're quote-unquote holding ourselves to the higher standard is like it's motivated by fear and it's because we avoid anything that we know we we can't succeed at. So we think that we're highly successful. Like, I mean, you know, I've written on this and, and I encourage any listeners who can relate to this to like, you know, read some of my articles, but it's I've written a lot about how, you know, as a kid, I really, I, I had only a f handful of failures that I recall, like just like a few, like really shattering failures. But that wasn't because I wasn't good at, or that wasn't because I was good at everything. It was because I only did things I knew I could succeed at. I avoided 
everything that I that I wasn't positive I would succeed in. And, um, you know, I missed out on a lot of experiences as a result. And so it's this very fear-based motivation. And then through developing self-compassion, I mean, the, the analogy I like to use that I sometimes find helpful with clients is treating yourself like a really good coach would. So, I mean, a good coach they're not like, like they have expectations for you. Like if you don't show up to practice, I don't care if it's five in the morning, you don't show up to practice, you're getting benched in the game. You know, if you, you, you can't just be like, oh, I don't want to run sprints. I don't want to do suicides today. No, I'm just going to sit this one out. No, like you, you participate. It's not again, like, you know, you're not going to get played, but when you miss that shot or when you, you know, make a, like a bad pass or something like that, your coach isn't going to cut you. You know, they're not going to say like, are a terrible player and you're pathetic and I don't like you anymore. And like, you know, what are you thinking? And like, they're not going to say all these things to you that we say to ourselves. They're going to be like, Hey, you know what? You're right. That, that wasn't a great shot. Like, yes, you did miss the net by like three feet or whatever, but like, let's find out what happened there. Like, it's cool. Like this happens to like, what was going on for you? Let's work through that. How can we practice and make sure this doesn't happen again? You know? Um, and sometimes it does have to have to happen several times and it still may happen down the road, no matter how good you become at it. But like, how can we take this as a learning opportunity instead of you know, an opportunity where we beat ourselves up and then never do it again? So when when you have that self-compassionate relationship to yourself that's like a coach, you're able to take risks. So for me, like I remember I had friends in university who like went on exchanges off to like the UK or something. And I just found I was so perplexed by this. I was like, how could somebody do that? You leave your friends and you leave your, you know, and you go off and like maybe your credits don't transfer over and you get behind in line. There were like sort of all these ideas like, oh my gosh, like how can anyone do that? And so I never like, again, as I said, I was just like went seven years straight, was just like always like kind of going for the next goal, next goal. And then even after, uh, you know, I, I finished my master's and when I finally did get a job, I actually landed like my dream job at a college counseling center and was there for a few years. And it was it was a really, really wonderful experience. But, you know, it was only uh, about a year and a half ago that I decided to kind of just like leave everything and just pick up and move to New York. And with not a lot of security, knowing no one, left a very, my, my job in Vancouver was a really good job with like a great pension and benefits and like eight and a half week vacation and maternity leave. Like, you know, 8.30, And it was just like, I mean, it was a dream job. But I was just, I, I knew that there was there was something more that I, I was meant to do and that I wanted to do. And I felt really compelled to come to New York. And so I just like friggin' packed a suitcase and and moved. I mean, I, I did have a job. I was offered a job, but it wasn't like, you know, it certainly wasn't a dream job or a long-term thing. And I'm no longer in that position. But I but I left, you know, I left the boyfriend that I had been living with and you know, the soccer team that I played with three times a week. And like I just kind of left and all my dear friends that I'd known since I was two. And, you know, kind of came and I never would have been able to do that if I didn't have self-compassion, like, because that would have been way too risky because, you know, self-criticism would have told me, but, but what if something goes wrong? What if you screw up? And I wouldn't have been able to cope with it. And I knew I would have just beated my, beat myself up, excuse me, if I hadn't quote unquote succeeded. But because I now have that like unwavering sense of self-compassion, I know that no matter what I do. I'm going to be able to find meaning in it and be kind to myself and like hopefully forgive myself. I mean, there's some areas where I'm like, oh man, if I like were to, you know, run over a toddler drunk or something like that, not that I drive at all or nor that I drive drunk, but like, you know, there are some things where I'm like, ooh, like, I don't know, I'd have a harder time finding self-compassion in one of those situations. But, you know, and and that's sort of something that I, I marinate on. And I'm like, how would I find meaning in that and work through that? But, I mean, I really don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, from pretty much everything else, I'm like, I, I can't imagine something that I would do where I couldn't find forgiveness for myself or couldn't, like, find the meaning in it or find the, you know, the silver lining or whatever without sounding too cheesy. And that's 
that's because of self-compassion. So that allows me to not feel like I have to always be in a relationship. Like I am single right now by choice, you know, and I'm, I'm happy. And, you know, it allows me to be able to be, you know, the heaviest weight I've ever been in my life, but be like the happiest I've ever been in my life, which I could not have imagined five years ago. Like I just couldn't, those two didn't go together. It was like, if I was that weight, I would be miserable. It doesn't matter what my life looked like otherwise, right? You know, or be able to take risks and, you know, essentially be a freelancer that I am now um, and not really have like this clear path. Like, I don't know where I'll be in a year. And, and and that's okay. Like I'm very, I'm so much more comfortable with uncertainty and uncomfortable feelings. And, you know, the days where I wake up and, you know, it is like that time of month or I didn't get a very good sleep or, you know, I am feeling kind of low and, and it's okay. Like I permit all that. So I think, yeah, that self-compassion, like as you were saying, my successes that I have now are a result of them, you know, not, not in spite of them. They're because of them. Yeah. Cause that's, it's such a great point that like self-criticism really keeps you stuck, keeps you small. And, you know, you may not think you're being stuck and small, but you're actually doing just that, you know, like it's, you're, you think you're pushing yourself to do something great, but in pushing so hard, you get nowhere. Like if you can open up and let yourself explore and feel and be like great things come to you and you don't have to push so hard yeah exactly and I think like so much of our success comes from risks and we can't take risks if we don't know how to sit with uncomfortable feelings and so when we can learn how to sit with anxiety and uncertainty and like inadequacy or rejection or failure or like like all the feelings that come up when we have when we're in transition or when we don't know what the next the future is going to look like then we can take risks because we're like I know how to cope with the difficult feelings that come up with this so I can do it anyway even even though perfectionism tells me I should stay in this comfortable role or like do what I know and what I can see and work for somebody else and like you know um stay in this relationship even if I'm like not super happy in it but you know I should because what happens if I'm single oh my god I might die alone like you know (laughs) oh my god it's like my baby clock my baby clock's gonna run out like and uh, so when we can when we can let ourselves like when we can learn that we can cope with not just those feelings that come along with risk but also like Okay, what if I never have children? You know, can I live with that? What if I am single for the rest of my life? Can I can I live with those feelings that come up? Yeah, I'll probably be lonely sometimes. Will I be able to support myself through that? Um, you know, will will there be some grief around like maybe not having children? Yeah, probably. Can, can I cope with that? Can I give myself compassion while I ride out that feeling because impermanence will eventually take it away? You know. Yeah. So I think being able to trust that no matter what happens, no matter what trauma we go through or loss we experience or the difficult, you know, stressors that we have in life, which inevitably we're going to have because that's what life does, um, then we have this like, we can have this calmness or this like trust in the process or the universe or ourselves or whatever that's just like whatever comes like I got this. And as a result, we can actually like follow our hearts and our dreams and and do what we really believe we're put on this earth to do. Oh, I love that. The power of self-compassion. Right, exactly. I know. I like to think I'm like such a self-compassion ambassador. I mean, I certainly, I'm not like, I haven't done any of the research in it, but I think I'm like the biggest fan. <laughs> it's like, the amount of times I like quote, you know, Kristen Neff or Paul Gilbert, like they probably just think I'm this like crazed fan of theirs. <laughs> like, oh my God, everyone, self-compassion, <laughs> bring it into your lives. It's not the same as like that self-love where it's all about I'm perfect or I just love myself. It's not about affirmations. Like, No, it's just, it gives you flexibility. It's like, perfectionism is rigidity and inability to deal with setbacks that are inevitable and 
self-compassion is flexibility and ability to adapt and deal. Totally. I love that. Yeah. I, I often use the term of like Tai Chiing our emotions or like yeah. Chiing our, our thoughts and things because it really is like that. It's like it's like being like water, or, you know, just kind of flowing. And it's not about willing ourselves to not be hard on ourselves. Like oftentimes with clients, um, when we start listening to their internal voice, they'll start to be like, oh, I was I was so hard on myself this week. I'm so bad at this. I'm the worst. Like, I'm so, so bad. And it's like, no, no, be kind to yourself for being hard on yourself. As counterintuitive as it sounds, compassion is not like, you can't spot treat with compassion, I say. Like, gotta like, like give compassion in all areas of your life, to other people, to yourself, to like, but also to yourself for being hard on yourself and even to that critical inner voice. Being like, hey, man, hey, critical inner voice, I love you. You're so cute. You're coming in here. You're trying to help me. I see what you're doing. But you know what? Like, you've you've helped me as much as you possibly can and I think it's time for us to like you know take some space or you know for like me to us to like maybe work on your your voice a little bit and change it to one that's a little more encouraging and coach like you know give, give you some leadership training <laughs> like we give that like I feel like it's a you know like the coach there are obviously coaches out there who are really hard on um you know players students and stuff like that so it's sometimes like those coaches just need a little little coaching training or a little leadership training and to see that like empathy is actually like a really important skill as a leader and a much more useful tool for getting people to perform yeah exactly because then they don't have performance anxiety and it builds like that trust and and connection and so you know that's that's um you know if anybody listening wants to take like one tangible skill out of this podcast I would say you empathizing with yourself so what I'll often teach clients is this like um, starting off a sentence internally, or you can say it out loud if you want to, with it's understandable that you're feeling because. So like, hey, Megan, it's understandable you're feeling anxious because this is a new role that you're in and you don't know what to expect. Or, you know, it's understandable you're feeling hurt because, yeah, you were only dating that guy for like a week, but you really liked him. And like, you feel like he, like he blew you off and he's just stopped answering your texts, you know? <laughs> like, and like, that sucks and that hurts. And, and uh, so really just like validating our experience. So just be, just having that experience of being like, it's understandable you're feeling this right now and it's okay to feel this right now. What it does is it takes away um, what we call secondary emotions, which are the emotions that we create when we judge ourselves for having like the normal evolutionary emotions we have every day. So if I was feeling anxious because I was like, in a, you know, boardroom and or in a meeting and I felt like a little bit of imposter syndrome and I'm like, oh, like I, you know, I don't feel good enough here and I'm feeling anxious about what I say. And then I'm like, Megan, like suck it up. Stop feeling anxious. You're being pathetic. You know, you really don't belong here. You need to stop feeling anxious right now. And then now I'm feeling like anxiety for feeling anxious or I'm feeling shame for feeling anxious. And men experience this a lot too. I mean, women do of course as well, but men particularly because they're socialized not to feel or not to have any like weak feeling emotions. So, so they'll often be like, oh, you're being a pussy or you're being this or you're being that. And then they feel shame for feeling. So with the, um, the one like very strategic empathy, I guess you could call it, or just saying like, it's understandable I'm feeling because we actually dissipate that extra layer of emotion, those, those secondary emotions, which are so unnecessary that come out of judging ourselves for feeling the primary ones. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. It reminds me of there's a Buddhist concept of the second arrow, which is just like 
the old school version of what you're saying, you know, it's like, exactly. Yeah. Pema Chodron talks a lot about that. Yeah. Like if you get shot with an arrow, you're not going to then shoot yourself with another arrow to, to make the pain of the first one go away. You're going to pull the first one out and tend to that wound and stuff. But that, that's what we do with judging ourselves for our emotions. We feel something that's painful and then we pile on with like, why are you feeling this way? You shouldn't feel this way. You're weak. You're bad. You know, rather than like, oh, this sucks. I'm feeling so bad. You know, like what can I do to make it better? Totally. What do I need right now? And like, what is depression telling me? I mean, sometimes depression is telling us that we're not living a life in line with our values and we maybe need to quit our job, right? Or like, you know, we need to get out of that relationship. Or, you know, what is anxiety telling me? Sometimes it's saying we need to like not walk through that dark alley at night, you know, (laughs) or like those feelings are there to protect us. So being able to be like, look, it's understandable. I'm feeling this. What is it telling me? And what do I need right now? Yeah, we're all so adaptive. I tell clients a lot, like there's definitely a reason that you have this eating disorder or that you have this behavior around food because like you wouldn't have it out of nowhere. There's nobody is that broken or weird that like things just show up for no reason. Totally. And a great um, quote that I love from Paul Gilbert is, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. So it's like, look, it's not your fault that that you have this or that this has happened to you or that you have this diagnosis or this habit or you're in the midst of this right now. This is not your fault. Like this all came from something and from somewhere. But the thing is, is that now it is your responsibility. So now like it is up to you to kind of take charge here um, and seek help if that's what's going to be most helpful for you, um, which it, it usually is for people. And so it's kind of this like this balance between you know, reducing shame because none of us are like to blame for these, these things that as children, you know, we developed and like the way that we interpreted our world, but now it is the, the, the mind and the body that we're living in currently. And so it's, it is up to us to choose to make that change. And, and I really do believe that we can, I mean, I, I think that reality is very subjective and um, you know, there's not like some, there are no objective truths and there's not like, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm, I'm not, um, you know, religious in the sense that I have any like denominational beliefs or anything like that. So, I mean, I think that it really is up to us as, and we get to choose, like, do I sit here and hate on myself? Do I hate my body? Do I sit here and just like spit insults at myself and that's like contaminate my happiness for the rest of my life? Or can I permit myself to be the imperfect human being that I am and like try to get a layer deeper than like the superficiality and like what our society tells us we should find important which again is not to blame for that I mean that's again like we're kind of all subject to these messages and it'd be pretty strange for us to not be affected I mean they have like very good psychologists working for advertising agencies creating messages that are going to prey on our deepest insecurities so of course like yeah so of course we're going to you know none of us are are um are going to be free of that entirely but it is our responsibility to kind of start to peel those layers back and be like okay well what is important to me and you know what I've learned with um, you know, I think being a therapist and, and, you know, you probably have a similar experience um, is we're, we're, we're in this continuous research experiment, both with ourselves, but also because we hear so many people's inner worlds and experiences. And we're so lucky to have that, um, you know, to be privy to that. And, you know, what I've really learned is, is I think the most important things for people are ultimately meaning and connection. And if you can feel a sense of like meaning or purpose in your life, and as though like, whether it's your career or your hobby or like something for you, you know, being being a mother or like whatever it is, 
gives you a sense of purpose and meaning, that's going to be one thing that will help you um, help you feel happy. And the other is is connection, right? So because connection is is so evolutionary, and we all just want to belong. And you know, if we feel disconnected, there is that sense of like isolation and pain and loneliness and depression, and it's all there to tell us to connect, right? But they're really uncomfortable feelings. And I think that especially as women, when we don't feel a sense of like meaning or connection, we kind of fall back on what society tells us, which is we should be beautiful, we should be thin, we should be in relationships, you know, we should be desirable. And so we kind of default to like, okay, well, I don't know what I'm doing with my life or what I'm doing for the world, or I don't feel purpose or meaning in my career or in my hobbies or whatever. So I'll just try to be really thin. I'll just try to be really pretty. I'll just try to be good enough. Like I'll try to find, feel good enough and feel a sense of meaning in this other way. I think that's part of the reason. I mean, among, of course, many other reasons that we're, we're so susceptible to developing eating disorders. That's such a great point. And we're going to have to wrap up, actually. I just noticed. Yeah, 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 for sure. We've been talking for hours and I could talk for more and more hours, but I know. I know. This is awesome, Christy. Thank you so much for having me. I know I, I, can, I could definitely talk forever. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it's amazing. This stuff is so powerful and so important. Where can people find you online? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you can pretty easily, I mean, you might even just want to like Google my name, to be honest, because a lot of stuff comes up in that way. So my name is, it's Megan Bruno, M-E-G-A-N, B-R-U-N-E-A-U, but my website is uh, One Shrinks Perspective. So O-N-E, not the letter or not the number one, www.onetrinksperspective.com. And uh, from there, I mean, you can find like a lot of my articles on my blog, but I also contribute to Mind Body Green a lot and Gaia and Huffington Post and Forbes and Thrillist and Entrepreneur and I don't know, probably others. I don't know if I listed them all there. I've written for, yeah, a lot of lot of publications there. And then I also have a YouTube channel, um, which is just under my name. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook. I have a, a Facebook page and LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> like Awesome. You're come follow me and and uh, and also feel free to email me email me so that's just uh, megan.bruno again m-e-g-a-n dot b-r-u-n-e-a-u at gmail.com and yeah email me with any questions or if you want to work together or anything like that I offer Skype and telephone counseling as well as in-person counseling um, but also just if you want to connect and say hi and and let me know if any of this was helpful or if you have any thoughts on anything that I said that's fantastic I love it oh thank you so much Megan you're so welcome, Christy. Thanks for having me as a guest. That was really fun. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positive positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison and the first First eye is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect?